Would you turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5? I'd like to speak on the subject of headship and submission in Christian marriage. Now, I know that we've just heard some messages on that not too long ago, but I've been thinking more about it because I've been thinking about trying to write a tract on that subject. And so I've been gathering materials on that and thinking about it a lot. And so since that's what I was thinking about, I thought that might be what I should speak on. So um, that's what I desire to do here tonight. In fact, it'll probably be two times because I gathered so much material I didn't know what to do with it all, which is going to be a problem uh, for writing a tract because... A tract isn't a book, <laughs> although some of mine have turned out that way, close, close to it. <clears throat> anyway, um, the basic thing that I want to get across, the basic premise of this message, is that only through the power of the Holy Spirit and a proper understanding of Scripture can there be real harmony in marriage and can God be honored in the home? So um, we need the Holy Spirit to instruct us and then to make it real and make us walk in a way that is in accordance with what we understand to be His Word. Now, Normally, what happens in a message uh, related to marriage, Christian marriage, is people begin reading in chapter 5, verse 22, where it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. But I do not believe that's the proper place to start reading um, because there's a flow here. There's a context. Actually, the context is the whole Bible, but, but there's a, a smaller context right here that's important. Um, if we start reading with verse 22, we miss the real thrust of what Paul wants to emphasize related to marriage and really relationships in the church also. So, let's begin reading with verse 17. We could start even a little before that, but for the sake of brevity here, time. So then, you all with me? 517. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ 
to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. So the reason I say that we need to start earlier than verse 22 is to live the way Paul is talking here we have to be filled with the Spirit. This is what he's saying. Be filled with the Spirit. You see that um, in verse, uh, the end of verse 18. But be filled with the Spirit. The idea of being filled with the Spirit here is contrasted with the idea of being drunk with wine. In either case, the person is under the control of something else. To be drunk is to, be, to yield oneself to the influence of alcohol. To be filled with the Spirit is to be under the control of God's Spirit. And this is not a one-time thing. This is an ongoing thing. Keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, this is something that we must continually come to God for. And that's the only way you're going to have what Paul talked about in Ephesians 5 about husbands and wives. It's the only way you're going to be able to walk in that is to keep coming to God to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think as the more we understand of what he's saying here, the more we examine this subject of, of Christian marriage, we'll see how much we need the Holy Spirit to live the way he's talking about. <clears throat> well, Paul, after he talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, he goes on to mention three results of being filled by God's Spirit. These are a joyful heart expressed to others, thankfulness to God, and submission to one another in Christ. You see that? He brings up those three things. First of all, he mentions joy. The joy he's speaking about, of course, is a deep inner joy, a deep, a deep sense of well-being despite circumstances. Uh, it's a joy like Paul and Silas had there in the Philippian jail 
when they're locked in, in chains, uh, and yet they were singing at midnight. That's the kind of joy he's talking about, despite circumstances. Um, so, joy, the first thing. The next thing that he mentions as a result of being filled with the Spirit is thankfulness. As he says, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Grace and gratitude should always go together. The fact is that they come from the same root Greek word, same Greek uh, root, grace and gratitude. And if we experience God's grace, then we surely should be grateful for what he's done and always be giving thanks, again, despite the outward circumstances. So joy, thankfulness. And the third thing he mentions as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit is submission or subjection, to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This is an attitude that all Christians are to have um, toward one another. When the church of God is functioning properly, the members of the body will recognize that each person has gifts important to all. When the church is working properly, each person will recognize that each other person has gifts that are important to everybody else. Some will be gifted as leaders, but all will be viewed as important people for whom Christ died. When we see that, we can be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, you see. Each member has unique gifts that God has given for the good of all. In fact, the Bible says we are to view others as more important than ourselves. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So, I took the time to go through those because it's important to recognize that it's in this context which Paul brings up, it's in that context that Paul brings up the topic of marriage and submission and leadership uh, in the home. Now, as you, I'm sure, are aware, the Bible's teaching on submission in marriage is a very controversial topic in today's culture. Just the mere mention of the word submission raises the ire of many. For some, this is because distortions of the Bible's teachings have resulted in terrible abuses which they are rightly reacting against. For others, submission sim simply goes against their selfish desire to do as they please, to live for themselves with no authority over them. Um, they're not going to serve anybody, not even God. Not surprisingly, such people have a problem with the teaching on Christian submission. Uh, they have a problem with the teaching on laying down your life for one another. The first thing then to note about the topic of submission or subjection in marriage is that it's brought up in the context of all Christians being subject to one another. Do you see that? Verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, 
be subject to your own husbands. In fact, you can't possibly understand that verse without the verse prior to it because the words be subject in verse 22 are supplied. You see, they're not even there. You have to go back. It says wives to your own husbands. Well, wives what? To, to understand what he means, you have to go back to this thing of be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So, it's, uh, I think that's the first thing to really note from this, uh, that it's brought up, the whole subject of headship and submission is brought up in the context of all Christians being subject to one another. This general truth, then, is not negated when Christians are married. Although a new authority structure is being instituted, the prior relationship is not totally done away with. You're still brothers and sisters, even though you're husband and wife, you're still a brother and sister in Christ, and the command to brothers and sisters in Christ is to be subject to one another. Still children of God, still brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow heirs of the grace of God. There is a sense in which all Christians are to be subject to one another, willing to take the humble attitude, viewing others as more important than themselves. But there is also a sense in which there is a positional structure of authority according to gender which is established in marriage. So you have both of those, you see. And you can't go by just one or the other. Uh, Paul wants us to recognize both realities as important in marriage and in the home. The other thing to note about this passage is that by far the greater portion of it deals with the husband's responsibility to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Verse 22, 23, and 24 talk about the, the wife's, the woman's uh, subjection. But 25 through 31 talk about the husband's responsibility in leadership and loving his wife as Christ loved the church. So, if we put a great emphasis on the wife's submission, we can easily distort Paul's intention in what he taught on marriage. And what has happened in far too many cases is that a self-centered husband has used his authority in the home to indulge himself and to demean his wife and actually use the scriptures or abuse the scriptures in order to do that. So because of that, the non-Christian answer to this problem in our society today is simply to deny any authority structure in the home. Any gender distinction in terms of roles in marriage is totally out and uh, total equality is in. That sounds good on the surface. The problem is, is that's not how God made us. Men and women are equal in dignity and worth because of being equally made in the image of God. But God has made them different so they can complement each other in their different roles, both in the church and at home, in the family. So that's 
a basic thought that I want to get a hold. I want us all to get a hold of. Men and women are equal in dignity and worth because of both being equally made in the image of God. That's clear back in Genesis 1.27. But God has made them different so they can complement each other in their different roles in the church and home. The answer to abuse of authority is not a denial of any authority structure, but the proper use of authority. That's the answer. This is why Paul points to Christ as the husband's example. The husband is to deal with his wife as Christ deals with the church. And he loved the church and gave himself up for her. If we would put the emphasis where Paul puts it and where the Bible puts it, we'd have far less of a negative reaction to this thing of submission because we, there would be a, a situation where the, the wife gladly yields herself to one who is living the way Christ did toward the church. Consider just one account of what Christ taught his disciples concerning the, the proper use of authority. That's what we're talking about, the proper use of authority. As the disciples were eating the Last Supper there together with Christ before the crucifixion, he poured water in a basin and washed the disciples' feet. Then he said this to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. In other words, I am the one in authority. If I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I gave you an example that you should also that you also should do as I do to you. So Christ was setting there the example of how authority should be used. He's setting the example of servant leadership and he was doing it for the future leaders of the church. That's who was with him there in the upper room. Years later, Peter, writing about leadership in the church, spoke of this attitude. He said this, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. You see how he's going back to what Christ taught there? Not lording it over the flock, but uh, proving to be examples to the flock. And he goes on, this is interesting, and, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of, crown of glory. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. So there's another example of this thing. Yes, there's, a, there's an authority structure, but with that, you don't do away with this other thing. 
um, he says, uh, yet, and he says, all of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So you have to keep the, 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 these things, you know, in balance as you look at them. Uh, leadership never negates the need for humility. Now I might take just a little aside here and just say that as you study the history of the church, you can see where pride of position <clears throat> began to creep in, especially with leaders of the larger uh, church leaders in the larger cities. And they became, began to claim more authority. Uh, and when that happened, I believe the Holy Spirit departed and a subtle tyranny began to set in to what goes under the name of Christianity, Christendom. Simply because they would not take this servant attitude, this, this servant leadership uh, that, that Christ taught and, and uh, was an example of. Uh, you could, I think you could also call it uh, shepherd leadership. Uh, because that's what he's talking about, um, what Peter's talking about. Shepherd the flock among you. It's a shepherd leadership, one who cares and is willing to lay down their life for the sheep. That's the way it is in the home also. Um, in fact, in many ways, the home is to be like a little church. <clears throat> so, to rightly understand authority and submission, we can't look at the world, nor can we look at the worldly church. They got it wrong. <clears throat> and Jesus, Jesus warned about this in, in terms of trying to understand the proper use of authority by looking at the world. <clears throat> he says that uh, really they, what you'll see there quite often is a domineering attitude. Uh, uh, lording it over others uh, that, uh, that you have authority over. Uh, that's what you see in the world. Here's the way he put it. He, says, uh, he said to his disciples, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. Now, I think it's interesting to note that these people that are lording it over others like to be called benefactors. Isn't that amazing? Uh, they, those that exercise authority, uh, like to be thought of as good. Um, Either they think that about themselves or by those that would flatter them. But it's done to cover up ambition and pride and tyranny and cruelty. Well, Christ is warning against that kind of, of authority. The one exercising ungodly control may see his actions as beneficial and will want his actions to be seen as beneficial by others when in fact 
they are self-serving. Christ says, don't be like that. Don't be like that in the church. Don't be like that in the home. So, where do we get then the proper understanding of leadership and submission in the church and in the home? Well, we get this from a spirit-imparted understanding of God and Christ. A spirit imparted. That's why you have to be filled with the spirit. First of all, even to understand these things, let alone to practice them. A spirit imparted understanding of God and Christ. Here, the Bible's teaching on the Trinitarian nature of God is of vital importance. Now, you, you wouldn't think that you'd have to understand something about the Trinity to get a hold of what we should understand as far as Christian marriage, but I, I really think you do. And um, I think God's instructed us that way. So let's just think about this a little bit. Our Creator God from all eternity has existed as one God in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal and co-eternal, in a relationship, you see, an eternal relationship. So what we're talking about here, we're talking about relationship between a man and a wife in marriage, but there was... The, the, the basic reality of all relationships goes back to the one great relationship, the eternal relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three distinct persons of the one God shared in an eternal love, an eternal love relationship, yet somehow the Father was in authority over the Son and the Holy Spirit was in subjection to the Father and the Son. To put it another way, in God, three persons equal in dignity and worth with mutual admiration for each other existed in a recognized authority structure yet had different roles to fulfill. That's one of the reasons we're taught that there's a Father, Son, and a Holy Spirit. We're taught right in those very words that there's an authority structure. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That existed from eternity, you see. And there was a, a recognized authority structure with no demeaning uh, of, of the one in subordination. <clears throat> what I'm trying to get across is that this means that there can be a hierarchy involving a diversity of functions which is not in the least bit demeaning or detrimental to those in in subjection. Now I'm going to say that again because I think we need to get a hold of this. Because we don't think this way because of the way the world uses authority. We just don't see it this way. We don't see it practiced. We don't even understand it because we see it wrong so often. <clears throat> there can be a hierarchy involving a diversity of functions which is not in the least bit demeaning or detrimental to those in subjection. How do we know that? Because it, it's the reality of the Trinity. That's the way it is in the Trinity. Such is the eternal nature of God before the foundation of the world. Now this isn't just theology, you know, just in high... It, it's practical. It's right down to where we live in our in our relationships, and especially in marriage. So don't 
Don't lose me here because this sounds a little abstract. It is not abstract. It's the basis for relationships in this world and, and uh, between Christians. Uh, when the divine second person of the Trinity, I'm talking about the Son, took on human flesh and became a true man, this relationship continued. This, this relation of subordination continued. Uh, Christ repeatedly emphasized he was always doing what he did in subjection to the Father. He says that over and over again. Of course, right along with that, he also stressed his oneness with the Father and his delight to do the will of the Father. This was not something that was um, a begrudging doing of, of the will of God, the Father. He delighted to do His will. This subordination of the Son will not even end at the consummation of all things. When Christ comes again and the, the day of judgment and the, the uh, consummation, that this subordination doesn't stop then either. Uh, Throughout all eternity, Christ will reign with his Father, yet will be under his authority. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 28. Let me just read it. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom, that is, Christ hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is exempt who put all things in subjection to him. Now that got a little wordy, but don't miss this part. When all things are subjected, subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. In other words, the Son will be subjected to the Father. The Father has subjected all things to the Son, giving him all authority in heaven and earth. But when the, at the consummation of all things, God's gonna, Christ is going to give that back to the Father. And he says, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also we will be subjected to the one who subject, subjects all things so that God may be all in all. Now those are hard verses and uh, there's mystery. There's a lot of mystery there. And you can easily take it wrong. I mean, if you just had that verse, you might say that Christ is not co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. But we know from many other verses that's, that's not the case, that he, he is equal with the Father. And yet, uh, we have this teaching here that the Son himself also will be subjected to the Father. Another place you find this teaching is when Paul deals with gender distinction uh, in the church at Corinth. He starts that discussion, and it's easy to get off track on that too because you get to thinking about all this stuff about head covering. Don't miss the, the really important thing because I do believe that was primarily a cultural thing there uh, related to 
how uh, the gender roles in, in the culture at that time. But the way Paul introduces that subject and what he starts out with is this. He says, <clears throat> this is in 1 Corinthians um, 11.3, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. That's an amazing statement. Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. I mean, we could ponder that. And I just want to bring out some things from it here this evening. For our purposes, let's consider how God is the head of Christ as a model of how a man should be the head of a woman. We're talking about authority here. God is the head of Christ as a model of how man should be the head of woman. Now, this is especially in... We're talking about in Christian marriage here, okay? I want to emphasize that. This is talking about a Christian marriage. Uh, This... I mean, you have a lot of other issues when you start going uh, off into... Uh, people being unequally yoked. That's one of the reasons Paul says, do not be unequally yoked. Because you're not going to fit together right. Um, and it's going to cause problems. But in Christian marriage, let's, let's just, again, what we're doing now here just briefly is consider how God is the head of Christ as a model for how a man should be the head of a woman. In a Christian marriage, if a husband's headship makes his wife seem less honorable or of less value than him, it is an ungodlike headship. If a husband's headship, his leadership, his authority, makes his wife seem less honorable or of less value than him, it is an ungodlike headship. Remember, the persons of the Godhead are, are equal in value, honor, and importance. Though there's a subordination related to functions and roles, there is an equality in terms of personhood and honor. So, that's the first thing. Next, if a husband's headship makes his wife feel demeaned or exploited, it is an ungodlike headship. We're told in the scriptures that the father seeks to glorify the son as the son does the father. Jesus prayed this in that prayer in John 17. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. That's the way it should be in marriage. There should be a mutual desire to see the other person lifted up and esteemed highly. If a husband uses his headship to indulge himself, it is an 
godlike use of authority. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. If you use your headship, men, husbands, if you use your headship to indulge yourself, it's an ungodlike use of authority. Um, again, this verse, I think there's something else we can point out. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. The second part there um, speaks of the respect of sharing thoughts with one another. We don't just do our own thing independent of our husband or our wife. In a Christian marriage, if a husband's headship tends to divide instead of unify, it is an ungodlike headship. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. That speaks of a unity. I and the Father are a unity. And if your headship tends to divide you from your wife, there's something wrong. It should draw you together. Think about that. Incredible. So different than what the world views as the way authority works. And, of course, if there is abuse or violent behavior, a husband's headship is ungodlike. I'm sure you could think of more implications of this verse. Uh, it certainly sets a high standard, doesn't it? I mean, how you get any higher than God's way of dealing with his son. It sets a high standard for the husband in Christian marriage. And again, no wonder that Paul leads into his teaching on marriage in Ephesians by emphasizing the need to be filled with the Spirit. You cannot live this way apart from the Holy Spirit. You won't even understand this apart from the Holy Spirit. So, those are some thoughts related to headship and submission um, in Christian marriage. And we'll go on from there, Lord willing, next time.